0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the word and proclaim His gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Faithful God, thank you for honouring your every promise to restore this world through Jesus. May we trust your every promise and obey your every word through Jesus' strength. Amen. Well, it it really matters who you trust, doesn't it? Uh, Whether it's in friendship, in marriage or at work, it's no understatement to say that trust is the foundation of every healthy relationship. And when that trust is gone, that's the moment where a relationship falls apart, isn't it? Just think about that friend whom you've confided in, you've shared your secrets with. But instead of keeping your confidence, they take advantage of you. They break that confidence and they break that trust. What happens then? We do what's most natural. We protect ourselves, don't we? And we vow to ourselves, I'll never trust anyone else ever again. Words are cheap. Promises are empty. People cannot be trusted. That's what at least we tell ourselves, because a promise is only ever as reliable as its maker, isn't it? And all too many of us know from bitter and harsh experience that people are not reliable. But I wonder, what would you do? How would you respond if God made you a promise? What if the God who spoke this world into motion, who spoke this world into existence, now speaks to you a promise that is ironclad, blood-bought, and rock-solid? You might not trust anyone else, but will you trust Him? Will you have faith in His promise? Will you trust that promise, God's promise, against all odds? In Genesis 12 this afternoon, we're going to see how just one promise from God can change the course of human history. In fact, this one promise, it defines human history. It ties history together. This promise is that scarlet cord that runs through every page of our Bible. It's that scarlet cord that gives every moment of our lives meaning. And I'd go so far as to say that this promise is so great that if you get it, you'll get the whole story of God. If you truly understand this promise, it'll unlock the Bible and show you how everything fits together. And that promise is this. God will restore this whole world to everything it was meant to be. God will restore this whole world to everything it was meant to be. And here's the crazy part. He's going to start it all... Through one man. But before we can look at the promise, we need to reckon with our problem because there is a significant problem in front of us. You know, lately I've been watching a new Korean drama, my latest one is called Signal. And in the latest episode of this drama, a police officer of all people sees a dead body for the first time, and she breaks down crying. Now, the unsympathetic part of us might think to ourselves, why? I mean, you're a police officer. Surely you see dead bodies all the time. But also we think, well, why is it that we're shocked at death? I mean, in one sense, death is the reality that faces us all. It's the most natural consequence of life, isn't it? Death comes to us all. And yet still, something deep inside all of us feels that death is not the way it's meant to be. Our world is not the way it's meant to be. You know, in Act 1 of our story, we saw that God created this world to be good. You'll see it there on the screen. A world in which God's people, Adam and Eve, live in God's kingdom, the Garden of Eden, with God as their king. This is a world where the author, the arena, and the actors all live together in perfect harmony. This is the world as it was always meant to be, a world full of blessing. But last week, we saw that that world collapsed in on itself, didn't it? The actors rebelled against their author. We rejected God's word and seized his glory. And so God disowned us as his people. He banished us from his kingdom. And instead of our king, God became our judge. A world full of blessing now becomes a world under a curse. And in Genesis 4-11, to sin spreads throughout humanity like a deadly virus, and it infects every part of our world. You know what's remarkable, though? Notwithstanding the... Viral spread of sin, after judging our world through a flood, God still gives us the second chance we simply don't deserve. For whatever reason, it's absolutely amazing. Our greatest sin cannot stop God's greatest story. And now, in chapter 11, verse 10, our story pauses. It's as if from Genesis 1 all the way until this very verse... We've been viewing this story through Google Earth. We've been looking at God's big plan for the whole world. But now, chapter 11, the camera stops and it zooms in all the way to street view. And we find ourselves on one suburban street, looking at the house of one ordinary family. This is the family of a man named Terah. You see, Terah has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And God calls this family just like he called Adam, to be fruitful, to multiply, to bear children and extend God's kingdom in this world. They're to be representatives of their king. But we have a problem, don't we? It's right there in chapter 11, verse 29. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. But here's our problem. Sarai was unable to conceive, and she did not have a child. Friends, can you see the problem that's presented in these verses? God wants Abram to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth as his representatives, to be his actors on the stage of history. But his wife, Sarah, is infertile. She cannot bear children. And if she can't bear children, how in the world will God extend his kingdom in this world? How in the world will he fulfill his gospel purposes? You know, it won't be too long before even people in our family will have that joy of bearing children and becoming parents. If you're married or engaged, please start thinking about kids. Because children are God's best for your marriage and this is a key way in which he'll extend his kingdom in our world. But you know it's those joys of childbearing that makes infertility so unbearably painful. You might know people who confront this problem. Just imagine the pain of of grieving a child you've never held. Of missing a child you've never known. I think what makes infertility so viscerally painful is its finality. There's nothing we can do to change it. And here in Genesis 11, the story of God is stopped in its tracks by a problem that seems so final that there is literally nothing anyone can do. Or so we think. Because into that problem God speaks his promise. Just look there. He he promises to restore this whole world to everything it was meant to be. And here's the crazy part. He promises to restore it through Abraham's children, an old man, and his infertile wife. It's surprising, isn't it? For, For a promise this great, a plan this important, God doesn't choose a powerful king. He chooses an insignificant stranger. It's as if a world-class playwright says to the year 10 work experience kid, mate, we're going to restart this play from the ground up. And guess what? We're going to start with you. And right throughout the Bible, we see this pattern at work where God makes significant promises to insignificant people. So let's look at that promise. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, the Lord said to Abram. You know, immediately when we think of the first time that God spoke, when he spoke something out of nothing, light out of darkness, life out of death, and we wonder, will God do it again? Will he speak life into this barren womb? Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The Lord, he calls Abram to leave everything he knows, to leave everything that makes him who he is. You know, people in the ancient Near East weren't that different from, for example, indigenous Australians on Groot Island, the very people that Matt and Kate Vinicum are seeking to reach with the gospel. Both those group of people have a deep connection to their land. Their land is their home and it defines who they are. But the Lord says to Abram, leave your home. He also says to Abram, leave your family. You know, for many cultures, our families define who we are. Even when we marry, there's this unbreakable bond that we have with our parents, isn't there? And just like for many of us, Abram would not have been able to conceive of a life without his parents. But the Lord says to him, Leave them as well. Leave everything you know for the sake of something so much better. Leave everything you know for a promise so good that no sacrifice can be too great. I'm going to restore this whole world to everything it was meant to be. And guess what? I'm going to start with you. God chooses this one man to be the starting point, to be the first man on a whole new world. This will be a world where God's people will once again live in God's kingdom with God as their king. I mean, just imagine if you were Abram, what you must be feeling. Peter Parker, he was shocked that Tony Stark chose him to be the next big superhero to replace him. Well, just imagine how much more shook Abraham must be, that God chose him to be the first man of a whole new world. And in verses 2 to 3, the Lord makes a threefold promise that almost point for point reverses the curse and restores God's good world. He begins with a promise of land. Remember what's happened. God created Adam and put him in the garden as the realm of God's kingdom, a world to rule and enjoy. But what did Adam do? He sinned against God and that sin cast him out of the garden. God banished him from his kingdom. Well, notice then that the Lord now promises to bring Abram to the land that I will show you. Leave your land for a much better land. Leave your home for a much better home. Abram was a nomad. He was always on the move. And God promises this nomad, I'm going to bring you to to a land which you can finally call your home. A land where you can rest as I always created you to rest. Abram's like that international student who grows up moving from school to school, city to city, country to country, always longing for a place to call home. And God promises him, a land that will be better than Eden. He promises him God's restored kingdom. Secondly, he promises Abram many children. Uh, Remember that God commanded Adam, Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Their job was to extend God's rule in the world by bearing children created in his image. But there's that problem, isn't there? Sarai is infertile. She's physically unable to be fruitful and multiply. So how, how in the world will she give birth to one child, let alone, verse 2, to a great nation? In just three chapters from now, uh, God will promise Abram and his infertile wife children as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, if you were an infertile woman, going to see your doctor and your doctor were to make that promise to you, that would be cruel beyond belief, wouldn't it? Because no man can promise life. But God says, I am no man. I am the God who spoke life out of death. So you bet that I can speak life into a barren womb. And when we think about all of God's promises throughout the Bible, how many of us doubt to ourselves, how in the world can God make promises like that? How in the world can God promise to forgive me? How in the world can God promise to cleanse my conscience? How in the world can God promise to wash away my guilt? You know, if just any man made those promises to us, that would be cruel beyond belief. But once again, God says, I am no man. I am the God who spoke life out of death. You can bet that I can forgive your sins. God promises that this barren woman will not only bear a child, He promises that she'll be the mother of a great nation with children as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. Can you see what God is promising? He's promising to restore God's people to God's kingdom. And he promises to restore finally himself as their king. In verse 2, God promises, I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. Once again, humanity will represent God on the stage of this world. Once again, they'll both reflect his glory and share in his glory. That Those mirrors of glory cracked by sin will be pieced together again. And this whole world will look at Abram's children and they'll see a reflection of the goodness and glory of God. Once again, the actors will represent their author on the arena of history. Abram's children will represent their God. And anyone who blesses them, God will bless. Anyone who curses them, God will curse. That's how much they are God's representatives. Once again, God will be their king. Just just pause for a moment and think about that. Did you get the magnitude of these promises? God is approaching this one insignificant man, a total nobody, an old man and his barren wife and saying that through you, I'm going to renovate this whole world into everything that it was meant to be. And it won't just be for you. It'll be for all the peoples on earth. It'll be for every tribe on earth. Don't you get it? Abram, you're just the beginning. I know that some of you in our church family enjoy making model planes. If you're short of ideas to do in isolation, this is a great couple's activity to do. Make model planes. That plastic model plane is an amazing thing in its own right, isn't it? You take it, you hold it up, it's a beauty to behold with all of its intricate details. But the model is never the point, is it? The model always points forward to the greater reality. The real, life-sized, battle-ready F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Well, Abram's children, they're in one sense like that little model plane. They're amazing in their own right, but they point to God's bigger plan, not just for them, but for every tribe on the face of this earth. I mean, just just think about it for a moment, right? That The story of God is shaped like an hourglass. It starts in Genesis 1 with the whole world in view. It narrows in Genesis 12 to focus on Abram and his children. And then, with Jesus who fulfills God's plan and promise, it widens out once again to reach every tribe in this whole world. That's why our vision as a church is to see every tribe worship Christ as King, not just Australians. Not just Asians, not just a particular group of people, no, every tribe. Because every tribe is God's vision in its beginning and its end. It's not the model plane. No, it's the real life-size, battle-ready F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. And as we step out of isolation, as we prepare to enter whatever future God has for us I wonder, are we as a church aligning ourselves with this story? Are we positioning ourselves in line with these promises? Will we commit ourselves to reach every tribe in our world that every tribe might know, love and live for Jesus? It's remarkable, isn't it? God doesn't give up on his world. It's crazy to think that God doesn't give up on us. I mean, let's face it, if I were God, and there's a thought, and thank God that I'm not, but sorry to say, and please don't take it personally, I honestly wouldn't bother. I mean, why save an undeserving and ungrateful people? Why give a second shot to a recalcitrant and stubborn humanity? No, God would be well within his rights to end his story back in Genesis 3, wouldn't he? But he doesn't. He doesn't. Just stop and think about that for a moment. For all our sin, for all our shame, our guilt and our fear, God does not give up on us. My dear friend, I need you to know this. God doesn't give up on you. You can bet your bottom dollar that when God makes a promise, he's not like us. He keeps it. Every last word. He promised Abram that he would restore this world and save us from sin and death. Well, I want you to know he's kept that promise. He's fulfilled it. He's fulfilled it all in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, the apostle Paul says that every one of God's promises is yes in him. Isn't that great? The promise he made to Abram is a promise he's kept in Jesus. God made his promise to one man. Well, God has fulfilled his promise through one man. Think about it this way. The Old Testament tells a story of a promise made. The New Testament tells a story of that promise kept. People, people, might not be reliable, but God is. People will let you down, but God never will. People's promises might be empty, but none of God's promises ever are. You might never trust a person's word, but you can bet your life on God's. God promises to restore his people to his kingdom, with God as their king, and he promises to do it all through this old man and his barren wife. Part three, the pilgrim. When someone makes you a promise, how do you know you should trust it? So you might think to yourself, well, you know what, Adam, if the promise is from that guy, well, there's no way I'm ever going to trust it. Because a promise, once again, is only as reliable as its maker, isn't it? Well, if God is the promise maker, I want you to know this is a promise that we can trust. And that's exactly what Abram does. He has faith in God's promises. Even though he has no idea where he's going, he knows whom he trusts. You know, if you're not a Christian, you might think that faith is nothing more than the blind belief in a set of unprovable assertions. You might think that faith is just blind. It might sound like when you come to church, we're asking you to leave your brain at the door. But faith isn't blind. No, faith has its eyes wide opened because faith is personally trusting the promises of God. That's what faith is. It's personally trusting the promises of God. And that's the realest faith that there could ever be. Some of you will know that I've got a really good friend up in Brisbane called Mikey. If Mikey gives me a ring later tonight and says, Adam, I can't tell you why, but I need you to come up to Brisbane tomorrow. I'll tell you what, I'm booking the next flight out. Mikey might not have given me any rational reason to book those flights, but I don't need one, do I? I know him. I trust him. I have faith in him. I might not know why I need to go, but I know who is calling me to go. Well, Abram doesn't know where he needs to go, but he knows who is calling him to go, and he has faith in him. He sets out as a pilgrim led by promise. Just think about this, right? When Abram leaves his home, he's 75 years old. And at 75 years old, his dad is 145 years old. And in 60 years time, his father will pass away, never again to see his own son. I know that some of you have, in one sense, left your parents all to follow Jesus. And you guys understand Abram's sacrifice far more deeply than I ever will. Abram. At least here in chapter 12, is a model of faith. And so are you. Brother, sister, if you've left family to follow Jesus, I praise God for you. In verse 5, Abram takes everything he owns. He leaves everything he knows. But he has one thing with him, doesn't he? He is led by the promises of God. In verse 6, he arrives at Shechem at the Oak of Moreh and God shows him that, that that this land will be one that his children will one day enjoy. It's the land of Canaan. And so what does Abram do? He builds two altars, one at Shechem and one between Bethel and Ai. It's almost as if Abram is planting a flag in the ground and declaring that this land belongs to God. And this passage ends with Abram continuing his journey throughout God's promised land, stage by stage, all the way to the desert region of the Negev. It's as if wherever he goes, he plants an altar. Wherever he goes, he sees the land that God will one day give his children. Abram is a pilgrim led by promise. And he trusts in that promise that one day, God will bring him home. Just imagine for a moment there's a family that's building their new house. On the day the foundations are going to be laid, the dad, he brings his kids along to watch the cement being poured. And he gets his kids to write their names in the wet cement, almost as if to claim their future home. And this dad, he looks at his kids and says, Boys, girls, for the next few months, we're gonna be moving around from house to house. We're not gonna have a settled home. It's gonna be hard. You're gonna be living out of your own suitcase. But I promise you, take a look. In just a year's time, I'm gonna bring you home. And that's exactly what happens. For the next year, this family moves from house to house, from temp accommodation to temp accommodation. And for all the frustrations that there are that these children have of living out of their own suitcase, they remind themselves, no, dad promised us that he would bring us home. In fact, he's done more than that. He's showed us our home. He's let us write our names in the wet cement. The foundation is waiting for us. And one day we will come home to enjoy our final rest. You know, Abram's not too different. Just like these children trust their dad. Abram trusts the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 10 says this. By faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. Get this part. He went out even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise living in tents as Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of, there it is, the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see, friends, in this chapter, Abram is a model of faith for us all. He shows us that the only response to God's promise is to trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. God promises to forgive our sins through Jesus. He promises to save us from death through Jesus. He promises to restore this world through Jesus. And all we have to do is exactly what Abram does. To trust God's promise and obey God's word. So will we obey as Abram obeyed? Will we go as Abram went? Can it be said of us that like Abram, we obey God and leave all that we have with nothing else in our hands but the promises of God? Brothers and sisters, will we live as pilgrims led by promise? Will we resolve to be never truly at home in this world, never too comfortable with our jobs, our families, our securities? If you're one of those people looking to buy a new home right now, will you buy your home in this life with an eye to your true home, the city whose builder and architect is God? Are we willing to go wherever God leads? ready to go whenever God calls, eager to sacrifice whatever God wills. We will only ever live as pilgrims if we truly believe God's promise. Abram believed that God would create a great nation out of a barren womb, that he would give this nomad a home that he could finally settle in and that he would restore and bless every tribe on earth with once again God as our king. Abram believed that so much that he was willing to leave everything that he had, trusting in the sure promises of God. The God who spoke this world into existence has spoken a rock-solid, iron-clad, blood-bought promise to you and to me. He speaks this promise that he will restore this world in Jesus and restore us to God's great story. The only question remaining for us is this. Will we trust that promise? Will we obey that word? Act one and act two. God creates a good world for us to rule and enjoy but we reject his word and seize his glory. Praise God then for Act 3. God promises to restore his world, starting with one man. Let's pray. Faithful God, thank you for honoring your every promise to restore this world through Jesus. May we trust your every promise and obey your every word through Jesus' strength. Amen.